Got a lot of drinks. Got to be hydrated. Got to be hydrated. Got to be up. High energy. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Uh, we got got a great show coming up for you, some, some tax reform, uh, a, a show-stopping Medicaid expansion research paper. Uh, but, you know, first, uh, we, we did want to talk about a subject that's, that's really been dominating the news, and, and it's not, I think, quite obviously as, as weedsy, but I think does, you know, get us eventually into into some real some real policy questions. Yeah, so we wanted obviously Harvey Weinstein and sexual harassment has been pretty much everywhere for the past few weeks and like Matt said this is not necessarily the domain of policy, but I think there actually is an angle we've been kicking around for the past week or so, you know, over email just chatting about how this happens and how you prevent this from happening in the future. What are the steps you take as a company, as a culture, if you want to have fewer Harvey Weinsteins in the world? And how do you end up with a Harvey Weinstein? What are the circumstances that allow this to happen? I think one of the things that has been, you know, stunning and surprising to me as an outsider to all of this, as, you know, a non-Hollywood person, is what an open secret it was, um, that this was something where there were jokes at the Oscar about women who were nominated for Oscars not having to like Harvey Weinstein now that they had gotten their nomination. There are jokes on 30 Rock about, you know, one of their characters sleeping with Harvey Weinstein, that it was such an open secret that it was very there in pop culture. And as we're seeing with a lot of the reporting in the New York Times, in the New Yorker, is something that a lot of women experienced. And the source of it, you know, when I think about how something like this happens, one big factor seems to be the massive power imbalance, that you had someone who was quite powerful um, working with people who are very not not as powerful, who lacked power in Hollywood, who actresses who are less known. And once they did become well-known, kind of accepting this as a secret they kept. Um, the New York Times recently talked to Gwyneth Paltrow, who, you know, came forward after their first story ran, who kind of mentioned that she felt like this was a secret she kept as she got more famous, as she became better known. So you have power imbalance, and you have a lot of people who are getting their jobs through this person, who understand, you know, this is the way that Hollywood works. One of the things that, you know, again, as an outsider of this surprised me is the entire network that built up around this, that it wasn't just Harvey Weinstein, it was assistants and it was other people, it was agents setting up meetings with him in hotel rooms that made it feel very formal, that this almost became a formal part of the process that, of course, you would meet in a hotel room. And, of course, your professional agent wouldn't set you up for something weird and bizarre like this. And you know, that formality around it seems to have allowed it to continue in a way. It just felt like a system. It wasn't one rogue, one-off guy texting someone saying, come meet me in a hotel. It was an agent setting up a meeting with a powerful person in a hotel who would have an assistant there, who would offer you a drink, who would set it up as a formal meeting, and then it would turn into quite something else. And, you know, I think that is helpful in thinking through, like, what do you do differently? How do you structure a business and how do you structure an industry where this doesn't happen? And I think it's hard. I think it involves, I think it is likely and optimistically, I think there will possibly be changes coming out of what we've seen in Hollywood right now. But I think one of the things has to involve, you know, better channels for the powerless. Um, I don't know if unions are quite the right answer. They're actually pretty strong unionization and acting, but those don't seem to have prevented this. But something that gives, you know, gives people the ability to speak up against something that seems like a formal system seems to be part of what has to happen in order to address a problem like this one. I want to zoom in on the word formal because I think formal is a really important word here. So, so what you're saying here, which is correct, is that there was this weirdly quasi-formal overlay on what was fundamentally a very informal hiring system, 
right? So Harvey Weinstein made his sexual predation look professional by having an assistant take you up to his room. And it started and there was someone else there and then the other person left. And so it seemed like maybe it was a business meeting. But but what's interesting about it and, and what's horrifying about it is at the core, what was going on was an incredibly informal, non-process-oriented industry, right? Where the way you get an incredibly important job is Harvey Weinstein likes you. And something that you see across industries uh, and, and across time when different kinds of abuses, not just sexual predation and, and assault and harassment, but, but also different kinds of um, management discrimination, pay discrimination, all, all, all kinds of things, is a move towards more formal processes. Because it's in this kind of informal, relationship-oriented, lean-running thing that a lot of abuse can take root around the edges. So I'll give an example all the way on the other side of this. The federal government, the way it hires, the way it does raises, the way it does performance review, the way it does almost everything in terms of personnel is incredibly frustratingly bureaucratic, process-driven, and, and formal. Um, it's hard to get out. You get you know raises onto different levels. It's hard to say, hey, this person is just fucking great. We're going to give him way more money or her way more money, which is something that you can do in the private sector uh, with much more ease. It is very, very hard to fire people. But part of the reason that the federal government emerged that way, the civil service emerged that way, is that for an incredibly long time, the way the whole thing worked was patronage. Right. I mean, these positions were used to, for people to arrogate and, and retain power. Um, and so it corrected all the way to this other side. And something that I think a lot of industries over time have done, but 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 Hollywood in specific is going to have to do now and, and maybe has been doing in recent years. I mean, th there are ways in which I think that the Weinstein model is already beginning to, to weaken, uh, which is part of why he's begun to lose enough power that this stuff all began to come out, is that you cannot have, or at least it is very hard over a long period of time to have a industry with that much money and that much power where the decision, where the key decisions are made so informally, primarily by white men. Like that is just a recipe for terrible abuse. And people like don't like hearing that, oh, what you need is more meetings and you need to interview people in panels and like performances that like you need a system where it's more meritocratic and, and you know, that there's more transparency in how people are being done. Like when we interview here, like I've just been part of a, a interview process at Vox for, for um, this daily podcast position where we're hiring. And it's like, we have a spreadsheet of questions and we interview people as part of a group and we write down the answers to the questions so that we know like people are getting a reasonably similar uh, look every time. And we're trying to pull bias out of the process. And that is something that oftentimes when you do it, people feel like, oh, it's getting too bureaucratic or, oh, it's getting like, you're, you're taking all the artistry out of this. But one reason you do that, and I'm not saying it doesn't have any cost, but is because it's in these very informal, very relationship-driven uh, spaces where a lot of different kinds of abuse can lurk. And, and Harvey Weinstein was a particularly monstrous form of abuse. Yeah, I mean, something I, I was thinking about in regards to all this is uh, Gary Becker is a sort of very distinguished economist associated with University of Chicago, uh, sort of a, a Milton Friedman sidekick at, at times. That's maybe too demeaning. But, you know, <laughs> a part of a, a big intellectual force in the sort of free market turn in the sort of last quarter of, of the 20th century. And some of his work that I think right-wing people sometimes really like to, to point to, to, like, show how great they are, uh, was on uh, discrimination, r racial discrimination, but it also applies to, to gender discrimination. And it's basically a sort of elaborate effort to show that in a competitive marketplace, uh, having an irrational bias against hiring black workers, say, should be wrung out. Of the market, right? And so that the the solution, he, this was based on work he did in the 1950s when obviously civil rights, uh, racial equality was a, a real hot button political topic. And he was trying to set, make the case that like free market economics was like the way to achieve these anti-discrimination goals. And to me, when you look, you know, not just at, at Harvey Weinstein, but also at Roger Ailes and other high profile stories you see about this. Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, 
in some ways, I think Weinstein and Ailes make the point more clearly even than, than Trump. You see how not true that is, right? Like, you might think, okay, so this was an open secret. People in Hollywood, like, had the word that Harvey Weinstein mistreated people. So on the margin, actresses would be disinclined to work for him, and they would work for other producers. And so those other producers would have, like, better movies, and his company would lose its prominence and and lose its, its grip. And all across America, you would see that, you know, even without formal dispute recognition mechanisms or strong unions or enforceable anti-discrimination laws that just like they're talented women, they don't want to work for abusive bosses. And so in the end, like the abusers lose out and, and we all win. And and you can like draw up that model as Becker did and like it, it looks really nice. Uh, but I just think the overwhelming force of reality is indicating that like that is not happening, that the actual way the civil rights revolution came to America was, like, not the free market way, that, like, some very forceful laws that, in in a certain reading, they're, like, a little bit odd. They're, like, you can't decide who gets to have lunch at your restaurant. You have to just take all the customers. Um, like, that's what it, that's what it took. And I've been, I've been a little frustrated by how much the conversation in the wake of these big stories has focused on the idea of sort of voluntaristic changes. I mean, I'm I'm for voluntaristic changes, like men should improve their behavior, men should confront each other, you know, behind closed doors when appropriately and, and things like that. But I look at things and I, I say to myself, like, how can we change with blunter instruments like what's what's going on here that one of the things that's really striking to me about the Weinstein situation is that if you look back at the 25 30 year arc of this you would not say even now that having gone into business with Harvey Weinstein was a mistake for major movie distribution companies and other people if your thought you know 10 years ago was this guy's a talented producer who puts movies together that do well, so I'd like to be in business with him. Never mind these rumors. Like, you have been 100% vindicated in that judgment. If you were Rupert Murdoch and you look back on the whole trajectory of Fox News and you say, Roger Ailes seems like a smart guy. Uh, I think he's going to make a successful cable television network. I hear maybe he abuses women. I don't care. Like, You've been completely, like, even though these guys were eventually brought down, the, like, volume of the monetary consequences to people who worked with them and protected them is just not heavy enough. And, like, you need a world in which people say, not, like, because I'm a good person or because I want to do the right thing, but because I am a businessman who wants to make money and not lose money, that I am going to be exposed to, like, massive catastrophic legal liability if it turns out I haven't done due diligence on on who I'm working with. Right. And I think for these people themselves, like if you think of like Bill O'Reilly, like they, I I mean, they did lose some things, but it's not like the end of the world. Like financially, they're doing fine. I, I think a lot of it just comes down to how much as an industry, you know, you care about these things. Like if you actually think they are wrong, there was a interesting piece that um, Mia Kirshner, a Canadian actress, wrote for The Globe and Mail, where she explained how the SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, investigation process works. And she writes, if a SAG member launches a complaint, the union writes a letter and asks the production house or studio involved to conduct an internal investigation of the alleged abuse. You can imagine its effectiveness. An in-house investigation, by the very nature of being in-house, doesn't cultivate impartiality. And you know, especially when the person who is being investigated, you know, literally runs the studio. You can imagine that in-house investigation does not work especially well to ameliorate these things. So you could see an easy policy change at the union level, have a third-party investigator instead of having it being run by the production house itself. But And I think those policies, they they ultimately reflect values. We've, you know, talked about this here in the show that a lot of policy proposals, they, you know, reflect what you think is important, where you put your money if it's here in D.C., or 
what, you know, type of investigator you choose is really a reflection of what you value. I, I think another key change is having more women in in power, you know, having more women in production positions kind of creates, and that's a whole series of things related to the wage gap, related to flexibility in hours, and related to how you structure your workplace. And, you know, some of the things Ezra was talking about of having a hiring process that tries as much as it can to take the bias out of it, and also having a culture that tries as much as it can to take the bias out of it, that doesn't reward people who stay incredibly late just because they can, but aren't actually getting more done, but are just putting in a ton of face time to look like someone who is always at the office is going to disadvantage someone who has a family, who has other obligations outside of work. You know, having all of these, I think I really agree with Matt, don't necessarily arise naturally. They are the results of concerted efforts to change things. And a lot of that, I think, really comes back to the saying, like, we think this is a problem and we are going to implement the policies that might make some very powerful people uncomfortable. But we think, you know, we need to tip the balance in favor of people who have less power, who who need some intervention on their side, whereas those who have already accrued a lot of power, they they don't need that kind of intervention. And I think people people are often okay with this, I think, in theory. And then when they start mapping it out in practice, people get very uncomfortable. So one of the more controversial pieces I've ever written was a defense of affirmative consent laws. Uh, not laws, actually. Uh, as I, If I'm remembering this issue correctly, it's regulations at, at various campuses. So we're not talking about sort of a, a legal issue. We're talking about how do campuses in, in investigate claims of sexual assault. And, and if you don't know about this debate, affirmative consent basically moves, this, uh, moves towards this idea that if affirmative consent wasn't given— then the act, uh, if affirmative consent wasn't given or could not have been given because the person was heavily intoxicated, uh, then the act basically counts as sexual assault. And these um, regulations really make people uncomfortable, and understandably so. I mean, when I first heard about them, they made me uncomfortable, right? There's a lot that happens between college kids that uh, is not sort of like people get taken away by passion. People don't sort of stop at every moment and say like, hey, like, you know, are we still good? Is this is this still what you want? And I began talking to to women in my life about their their experiences with this. And the reason that that I changed my mind on these laws was that it became really clear to me that we were living in a an equilibrium where the gray area was all against the women. That there there was all this space in which the norms had become such that like the mistakes that were being made or the crimes that were being committed really, really favored uh, awful, like uh, like a culture of assault, right? What people call like a culture of rape. And that just like every woman I knew had these experiences. And, and, and so something about affirmative consent laws, you know, people are worried, well, like, will somebody come afterwards feeling like, they're, like they just made a mistake, right? They were too drunk and they wish they hadn't done that and say like, oh, well, I never, I never gave consent. And it's true, like bad things can happen. But one thing that you, it seems like we are in a society that we need to think about is changing where the equilibrium is, changing, honestly, and, and people hated that I wrote it this way, but, but I, I think it's true, changing who is afraid. You know, when I go to my friend's house, um, I can't take their shit, uh, not legally. Like, I need affirmative consent to borrow a stand mixer. Now, one of, some of my friends I'm really good friends with. And, like, I'm not really that concerned that if I, like, you know, grab something on my way out that, that I needed to use, that they're going to, like, call the police on me, right? That we have enough understanding that, 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 that it works out. But we really take property rights seriously in this country. And so we make it the case that, like, you need to be pretty fucking sure that you've got consent before you take somebody else's stuff or you really need to ask them. You need to talk about that. You need to talk with them. We, in a lot of other spaces, have not done that. We don't take it seriously. And so the kinds of um, we are allowing and cultivating uh, a space, an environment in which a lot of the places where there's gray area 
end up against the people who have less power. And, and, and I think this is very particularly true sexually. Uh, we have created a world in which women really bear the brunt of keeping themselves safe and often can't keep themselves safe. And then when they try to do anything about it, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard because of the way the laws are constructed, incredibly hard because of the way power is constructed. But, you know, my experience even just talking about this stuff is that when you begin to talk about anything where, yes, there might be abuses of a new system, right? There's no legal equilibrium we have that is perfect. That people are sort of they, people will agree that Harvey Weinstein shouldn't be able to be a sexual predator. But having the kind of like pretty big change in societal norms where you really move to where like fear resides in different places where people feel all of a sudden the way they've done things forever that maybe they have to change it and like maybe they don't understand what it will be required to change it and maybe they'll like have to be more tentative and like it will hurt them even if they're not, even if they don't think of themselves as a bad person. Like that is a real change in power and people react to that very, very badly. But I, I think that what Donald Trump and Roger Ailes and Harvey Weinstein and everything else we know says is that we have created a cultural environment in which the bias is much more is way 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 uh against women um and way 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 too permissive of a of a sexual culture that has a lot of assault in it and a lot of things that end up feeling like assault but are in this gray area that we've decided to have ultimately advantage um men and th that's a big change, and it's a scary change, and I don't want to suggest in any way that it's a costless change, but it 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 is one I think that we need to make. Well, and I'd say that bias like often rests on women like dredging up some pretty terrible yes. moments in their past in order to effectuate any kind of action. There is this kind of Me Too storytelling hashtag that's been going around, and I mean, it's something a lot of women I've talked to, and, you know, myself, I feel conflicted about this idea. On the one hand, it seems like one way you effectuate change is by showing how common of a problem this is, how this is something that is pretty pervasive in a lot of industries, especially creative industries. But on the other hand, it just feels a little sick and queasy that the thing women have to do is dredge up these terrible stories from their past, and, and that's going to be the way that action happens. Um, you know, there was this list, I believe it was titled Shitty Media Men. I never saw it, but BuzzFeed wrote a story about it that was essentially or supposedly a list of men who women had had bad experiences with. And I think that speaks to kind of that, you know, it's it does not sound like a great way, it, it does not sound like a great policy intervention to have an informal list of like people that men men that some people think are shitty. It's not a great way to adjudicate these things. But it kind of speaks to that, you know, shift in like who's afraid idea you're talking about. Instead of, you know, women being afraid of sharing stories, it's men being afraid to be on that list. But, you know, this Me Too hashtag, this idea of sharing stories, it's something, I mean, it's difficult. It's not, it doesn't feel like a great thing that the way to fix this is a lot of people who have been abused have to come forward and go through the painful process of talking about that abuse. Could I offer a very specific example here? Uh, Matt, do you, do offer you're... away. So I just read the complaint that Summer Zervos, who was a, a candidate on The Apprentice, filed against Donald Trump for defamation in the aftermath of, of what is a sexual assault. And I think it's very telling to um, just like hear the story that she tells. So she says that so she was a, a, a on The Apprentice. She she got fired. She didn't win, but she liked Donald Trump. She they had a good relationship. She thought he liked her, and so she wanted to get a job with him or or get mentorship advice. So she lives in Orange County, California, actually where I'm from. But she goes to New York and she has a meeting with Donald Trump and she you know emails him and he says I'd be, I'd be happy to see you you know come by the office and when she comes in. He kisses her on the lips, and she thinks, whoa, that, that, that's weird. But then they mostly have a normal meeting, and he compliments her, and she thinks, okay, maybe this is all fine. Maybe he's got kind of like a European thing going on, and he just kisses people on the lips. And as she leaves, he does it again. Okay. So then nothing, nothing, nothing. And then Donald Trump is coming out to the West Coast. This is 2007 now. And he calls her, or has somebody call her, I don't know. 
and says, oh, you know, I'd love to continue our conversation. Let's meet for dinner at the Beverly Hills Hotel. She says, great. Um, so she goes to the Beverly Hills Hotel. She is brought by Trump's security detail. Again, this is all uh, as she alleges it, right? I'm, I'm reading, I'm, I'm telling you what is in her complaint. She is brought by Donald Trump's security detail to Trump's bungalow, where she sees like a bunch of clothing on the bed and Trump is like nowhere to be found. But he's not, he, she can hear him. He's in another room. He's like, and he like sings out hello to her. Like she says, actually in a sing-song voice. And she waits around for 15 minutes and he comes out. And he just like, but remember, this is what he says about himself in the Access Hollywood tape, that he's like a magnet. He just begins kissing them. You guys remember that line from him? Mm-hmm. He, in, to her complaint, he comes out and he just immediately starts trying to kiss her. And she says, wait, stop. Like, this is not what I want. And he's like, sort of, oh, you know. And then at another point, he tries to, to grab her breast. At another point, he, you know, basically like rubs his genitals on her. It's, it's a sexual assault. And, and she rebuffs him. According to her, she rebuffs him. They ultimately do have this kind of weird awkward dinner where he's like sullen and telling her to default on her mortgage. It's The whole thing is strange. I was trying to th- imagine there's a line that she says he said to her where he said, what do you want that night? And she says, I wanted to have dinner. And I was trying to put myself in Donald Trump's shoes, actually. Like, is there a world in which he like had kissed her on the lips at his office and then he had invited her to dinner and she accepted. And he's like, great, this woman is interested in me. This is what we both want, right? He just decided not to hear the part where she really wanted a job and wanted mentorship. Like he believes he's sexually magnetic and, you know, everybody wants him. And and this goes, I think, to to, to this point about consent and this point about where legal liability rests and how we think about these kinds of situations. I don't want to be the person defending Donald Trump in this situation. I'm not. I think that you can imagine how Donald Trump believed that there was an opening for him here. And in the kind of completely like anything goes, real tilt towards men, men are supposed to be sexually aggressive. You never ask, right? Like that would interrupt the moment. It creates a world in which Donald Trump tries, goes for it. A world in which the standard, the legal standard, is that before Donald Trump kissed her or touched her breast or rubbed himself on her, he had to ask. And if he had not asked, if he had just not gotten permission, that itself would have made his act assault if she had tried to prosecute it. You can really understand why men don't like hearing that, right? You can understand, you can, I can imagine all these, like I've had dates where I like, I leaned in to kiss someone and, you know, like it was fine, thank God. But, you know, like I did, you know, that was what I thought I was supposed to do. You can understand how like a change like this would be really scary. But on the other hand, you understand how it could have protected her, right? Insofar as maybe there was in Donald Trump's head, some kind of good faith mistake here, like the idea that he was just supposed to like barrel through the awkwardness and like basically attack her in the hopes that she would respond positively, it's really bad. And, you know, this is the president. Like this is a, like an ongoing, like there was just a subpoena in this lawsuit that got that got it put out in March but reported over the weekend. But it's also just like this, it, it shows, uh, I think it's like this story that just shows like this is not a good equilibrium. Like it's a it's an equilibrium where if you want to be generous to a guy like Trump in this case, and I don't think given his history, there's a lot to be generous to, but if you wanted to try, like that's actually an argument for moving away from this, moving away from this world where like he should have asked and he should have heard no, and then it should have not happened. Not all this other bullshit, which is like, it's all on Summer Zervos who is like looking for a job and is much younger than Trump and is like intimidated by him and is there with his security details standing outside to like literally physically fight him off. Like it's a bad situation. Yes. I mean, it, it is a bad situation, but I, I, I also, I think that we need to really look at changing the legal liability rules that exist around this situation. Because I think that people understand that there are very strong incentives that women who are victimized have to not come forward, right? And that that's a real issue here. That for one thing, your odds of prevailing legally are not that great, just necessarily. There's usually not really clear, totally objective third-party evidence. There's sort of rhetoric in politics around 
you know, believe women, believe victims. And there's there's something to that, but that also doesn't that, that doesn't work as like a legal standard at, at a trial. Um, secondarily, people who want to continue to work in a field don't want to be known as complainers or troublemakers, right? And so the overwhelming tendency among women who speak up and speak out is to suffer consequences, negative consequences, repercussions for their own careers. And some of that could be because a sort of powerful man is directly retaliating against them. But a lot of it is just that, in general, it's not in your interest to have a reputation as somebody who files lawsuits against your bosses, even if you prevail, even if other people hate your boss who you sued. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not good for you. It's not, it's not good for business. I, I thought one of the more interesting stories about this that, that we heard was uh, Bjork's stories about uh, the, the Danish director, Lars von Trier, in which she was saying that it was a weird dynamic for her because she was already a successful and famous musician who didn't really care if she went on to have a movie career, but she could tell that the like sort of habits of abuse in the industry were so ingrained that it like didn't occur to anyone that she wasn't going to take this shit. But then her career as an actress was like over, you know, that it was just like, you're supposed to get along with the famous director who you work with. And if you stand up to him, like, it's it's done for you. And she was fine because th- that wasn't her life, right? But, like, that, that's just how it is. And so knowing that it is very unlikely that victims are going to come forward, that it's unlikely the victims who do come forward will necessarily prevail, and that there's pretty good reason on both sides to sort of, in a really egregious case— pay some money and and sign a non-disclosure agreement of some kind. We have to think about changing the legal framework to create really big rewards for people whose claims do prevail because there's a really strong and compelling public interest in having victims come forward, even though it's generally not in the sort of private interests of the victims to do that. And that's different, right? I mean, in a sort of standard product liability case, if you're victimized, if you have like a good claim and you really were victimized by negligence of some company, like lawyers will talk you into suing. Like it's it's a good idea to, to go forward with the suit. And that's good for society, right? It makes companies really cautious about, you know, making cars that explode and and things like that. And the basic dynamics of these sexual assault cases in workplaces are not like that. There are pretty good reasons for completely bona fide, genuine victims to not bring these things forward. It's a ton of personal stress, personal cost. And of course, you get some financial benefit if you win, but society reaps enormous benefits from people doing the work and bearing the cost of exposing these kind of situations. And I don't, like, right off the top of my head have what the answer is, but there needs to be sort of serious thought given to to that, that I, I think damages are awarded in civil cases, typically on the assumption that bona fide victims will want to sue, and that you do have a class of cases here where bona fide victims will generally not want to sue. And we need to make allowances for that in terms of the amounts of money that are involved, in terms of who is liable, and and things like that. Because otherwise... You just you you have this situation where you know we can sort of have these blowups and everyone can be like, well, how did this go on with everybody sort of knowing? But the reason is it it went on with everybody sort of knowing because it was in everybody's interests to sort of keep going along. And nothing about this wave of of stories and social media confessionals and anything like that has fundamentally change that dynamic. Like, you have to ask yourself, like, today, if there is a successful Hollywood producer today who you have heard from many people is, like, involved in fucked up treatment of women, but you don't have, like, definitive proof in your hands that that's the case, 
and he proposes making a movie distribution deal with you, there is no reason right now to freeze him out. There is no reason to say, oh, before we make that deal, I have to do some due diligence on the harassment rumors that I've heard around you. There's just no culpability. You know, it's true that if the exact same kind of stuff comes out about somebody else, that one guy's career will probably be ruined. But there's no secondary damage. There's no secondary fallout. And there's frankly not that good odds that other people are necessarily going to be exposed. I mean, even nothing about this situation has made it seem like, well, coming forward and naming names and going public with allegations is a a really great idea. It's in many ways just reinforced the fact that, like, that it isn't. And it's, I I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that We've seen an enormous amount of sort of news coverage and people flying around allegations of political hypocrisy, but that we really need to sort of crack open the the legal system and change how this works. I disagree with that. I have a slightly more optimistic take that it feels like there's almost like a moment of some of these things unleashing and having impact. I don't think it's all the way there. Like, I don't think, obviously, Donald Trump said he likes to grab women by their genitals and was elected president. Like, obviously, this is not a problem that we have solved. But it does seem like in the last year, you have seen with Bill Cosby, with Bill O'Reilly, now with Harvey Weinstein, more and more women banding together to say, like, we can we can do something about this. We can take the Whisper Network public. We can expose these people. And there will be some level of consequences that things will actually change. These people will lose their positions of power. You know, I have heard from women I know in media who are saying like, hey, you know, I had this experience. I'm talking to other people who had this experience. Maybe we are going to talk to another reporter about it who will write about it. I think there is something about watching the Harvey Weinstein scandal unfold that is in a way empowering. I don't think it fixes the whole system. I think I agree with you Matt, that you need even more legal pushes to to make this a more to make this an easier thing to expose. But I, I think there is something about just like you're seeing this snowball with more and more women speaking out against Harvey Weinstein, that it is different to have this many women saying something about it. And I think, you know, that probably doesn't open the floodgates, but it cracks them open a little bit more than they were before this. Let's take a break and come back and talk about tax reform. There's more to life than than white papers and and politics and and policy. It's it's nice to just sort of sit back and relax sometime with with a nice glass of wine. But it's also nice to make that be actually relaxing rather than a kind of stressful research experience all in its own terms. And and that's where Wink comes in. It's spelled W-I-N-C, and they make it easy to discover great wine without needing to research it, without needing to go through like a ton of weird back and forth between snooty wine store guys. Uh, They've got wine experts who select wines that are matched to your tastes, personalized for you, shipped right to your door, and starting at just $13 a bottle. It's really nice to come home to a box of delicious Wink wine that's selected just for you, and that's at a reasonable price, right? You've gotten sort of real customization without breaking the bank. Uh, so h- how does it work? What, what happens is you fill out their palette profile quiz, you answer simple questions that your average store clerk wouldn't think to ask, and they translate it into a recommendation. And then, of course, you know, they send bottles to you, you can rate them, and the more wines you wait, the more personal your monthly selections become. So each month there's new delicious wines like the insanely popular Summer Water Rosé. There's no membership fees. You skip any month. You cancel when you want. Shipping is complimentary. And if you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you'll love. No questions asked. So discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash weeds. You'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash weeds for $20 off. Trywink.com slash weeds. We're back up. Tax reform is is a big subject. We've talked about it before. We're going to talk about it again. I think today we just want to talk about one sort of slice of this, which is that uh, the the Council on Economic Advisors, uh, chaired by uh, Kevin Hassett, formerly of American Enterprise Institute, put out a 
interesting paper this week titled Corporate Tax Reform and Wages, Theory and Evidence. Uh, And it puts forward the striking claim that reducing the corporate income tax from 35% to 20% would lead to a $4,000 per household wage increase uh, conservatively. There's an interesting seeming tension here, which is a little bit unusual. It seems like the White House communications staff wants to go with the $4,000 number, which seems crazy to me, but that Hassett in his heart wants to say that the real number is 9,000 and is being restrained, uh, which slightly inverts the normal relationship between a communication shop and an economic shop. Um, I would not say that the evidence that he presents for this is Before we go into great. the evidence, can you just, I, I want to talk yeah. magnitude of this. So the the corporate tax cut we're talking here, if you don't pay for it, is about $200 billion a year. Yes. The wage increase we're talking about here is in the $500 billion range. It's a little bit unclear. I mean, you can, you can, depending on exactly what they mean, I think you could say he's saying wages will go up by as much as $600 billion or as little, quote-unquote, as $400 billion. But yes, it's twice or more right. the value of, of the tax cut. And, and so— So just, in it, just sorry, I just want to say this real quick. Yeah. So you have a chain of events where what you're doing is you're cutting taxes on corporations by X amount— then the Trump administration is saying, through that indirect approach, you are increasing wages for households by two x or more. Yes. That, sorry, that's wait. Just... And what's the, like the channel there they talk through? Well, so I mean, the basic logic here is that we have an in- globally integrated capital market, right? Money flows seamlessly across borders, and so. If you make your country an attractive place to invest capital by, for example, cutting the corporate tax rate, then you will suck international financial flows into your country and that this is going to lead to the creation of a lot of tangible physical capital, right? So we'll have more buildings, we'll have more machines, uh, more offices, more equipment, and that by providing such a larger stock of capital goods, you're going to greatly increase the wage-earning potential of typical workers. And to to give this theory its due, right, I I think that if you think about a small, poor country, something along these lines is pretty clearly correct, right? That I've been to uh, Cambodia is, I think, the the poorest country that that I've ever been to. And, And Cambodia has some great assets, right? Like, obviously, Angkor Wat is an amazing place. Um, textile industry and that kind of low-wage manufacturing has started to get a toehold there as as Chinese wages have increased. But there's just, like, not a lot of stuff in in Cambodia that's nice. It's a poor country full of poor people living in sort of shacks and, and, and stuff like that. And to tap the potential of their tourism market, for example, they need to build a lot of fancy hotels for Westerners. And then you might also want to build, like, restaurants for people to go to. And you might want to build uh, more factories for people to get out of the rice paddies and, you know, work in in textile manufacturing. And then you might want stores for those new factory workers to go shop at. And to get all that done out of Cambodia's domestic resources is really hard because it's like the country's poor. To be less poor, they need more stuff. But to get more stuff, they need money. So to get the money... It's good to have a very investor-friendly climate so that Japanese people or whomever will put the money in and, and get that all done. I don't think it makes any I, – I agree that you can sort of draw up on paper this model where this exact same dynamic applies uh, no matter what's going on. But I think it really defies common sense. I mean, looking at the United States where – Government treasury bond rates are really, really low. Corporate bond rates are really low. Junk bond rates are really low. Stock market prices, as Donald Trump likes to say, are really, really high. Where we have a huge domestic stock of billionaires and millionaires. I just don't buy that, like, this is what's going on. That, like, people do not want to put money into business ventures in the United States, and we need to somehow, like, get our hands on some money, and then we could have more stuff, and then people would be better off. Like, I don't I don't see that 
at all on any level, being how the American economy operates, what's holding us back, anything like that. And to cite this evidence, which which he shows that, okay, some OECD countries that cut corporate tax rates had investment booms, uh, but he's, he's looking at post-communist Eastern European countries. Some of them, not all of them. Right. But I mean, again, I, I, that yeah. makes sense to me, right? That you're looking at post-Soviet Baltic countries. You can totally imagine that out of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia in the 1990s, whichever of them cut their corporate tax rate to the lowest amount would attract the most international investment and therefore have an economic boom. Or but again, Ireland. This right. is like the Ireland story. Right. I mean, exactly. Or, or that, right, that Ireland has won some tax competition game. But like, what does any of that have to do with the United States? Like, on a fundamental but it level. Does, I mean, you, you keep asking this question, but the answer is it has nothing to do with the United <laughs> States. Like, there has been, it's worth saying that there has just been this sort of wide feasting on the bad details of this paper, um, particularly from past chief economists and, like, uh, Jason Furman, who is the, who is uh, Kevin Hassett's predecessor, uh, came out on Twitter, was like, none of this makes any sense. Larry Summers called it dishonest. And then Kevin Hassett accused him of an ad hominem attack. So Larry Summers wrote an op-ed explaining why he thought it was so dishonest. The Tax Policy Center people, Len Berman, said it was ridiculous. This is not good analysis. I mean, Kevin Hassett is one of these folks who, when he came into the Trump administration, it took some time, but, but people were broadly glad to see him there. I mean, he is not, he's like a normal Republican economist guy. He's been around town. People know him. Some some of his work is good. But he's quite far out there on taxes. I mean, this is not even... If you got Greg Mankiw, like this is not who is like... He's a Harvard e- economics professor. He was one of George W. Bush's chief economists. This is not as far as Greg Mankiw would go. Like, like oh, this is not where... This is like way beyond. And, you know, Hassett's thing for a very, very long time has been extremely optimistic estimates of the degree to which corporate tax cuts get translated into wage gains. I don't think this makes a ton of sense, but I also don't think that there's like some mystery here. The Republican Party is really into tax cuts. It has had for a very long time um, a lot of artillery focused on making the argument that they're a good idea. And this is an extremely aggressive version of the argument that this is a good idea. I think the tell in all this is that if it weren't true, right, if let's say it is not a $4,000 wage increase, let's say it's like, like not a wage increase basically, do we think any votes in the Senate would change? Do we think Kevin Hassett's opinion would change? And I, I think the answer is no. I think that this is a view about corporate taxation. It's a view about what kind of taxation is just. It's a view about like how to keep corporations going. I don't think this is actually a debate about how to raise middle-class wages. Um, and this all feels like a, a weird sideshow where we're pretending to have an argument where that we're really just like not having. Because it seems like if you wanted to give the middle-class a tax cut, you could just write yes. a middle-class tax cut. That also feels like the tell. Instead of going through this like, well, it's going to like lead to X, Y, and Z, and then you'll end up with people. I don't know. It seems like that's a simpler way. If that is like, in fact, your policy goal, it seems like there are easier just, ways, right. more certain ways but to th- get but there. But that's where I, I, I want to put a finger. I, I disagree with what you said about Greg Mankiw, right? Because Greg Mankiw, who is not in government and does not need to be as political about this stuff, what he wrote in January is that what the government ought to do is eliminate the corporate income tax entirely. So not cut from 35 to 20, but from 35 to zero. And he acknowledged that you would have to pay for this. And so he proposed paying for it by creating a national retail sales tax. Um, and he appears to sincerely believe that eliminating the corporate income tax and paying for it with a uh, hefty tax on poor people's groceries would make typical Americans better off uh, due to the incredible dynamic growth effects of, of corporate income tax repeal. And so to, to Sarah's point, the the reason they, – they really believe this, I think. I, I, I will often – accuse various figures in Republican politics of being liars. Um, 
But as far as I can tell, this is like the most sincerely held conviction of of conservative faith is that not just the one-off indirect financial flows, but the compounding growth effects of creating a more investor-friendly climate will be so large, right? Hassett says in the paper that you know, it's 4000 a year in the first year, but it grows over time in a way that a payroll tax cut wouldn't, right? And so, like, this is the the route to a kind of, uh, of an economic nirvana, and this is the, the supply-side revolution that Ronald Reagan brought to America in, in 1980, right, is to not think about these sort of petty demand-side, put money in people's wallets and let them go spend it, but is that if we make a more investor friendly climate, we will have more capital goods. And in the long run, we'll all be way, way, way better off. I don't, I can't really understand why people think this, but it's, it's like, it's very widespread. It's endorsed by the, the legitimately, like the leading experts in the right of center worldview. And I feel like it, it, like it drives the whole bus of everything else that happens in Republican politics. All right, should we take a break and then do a white paper? I think we should take a break and take then a do break. a white paper. Got to take the break before the white paper. People who listen to The Weeds are curious. They're eager to learn as much as possible. Uh, I am too, and that's why I know you're going to enjoy watching The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. they got thousands of fascinating video lectures on a huge range of topics. they got world history. they got politics. they got photography. They've even got chess. And it's all presented by trusted, engaging experts. The Great Courses Plus offers unlimited access to learn about anything that interests you. Stream or download lectures to watch on any device, anytime you want. They've got this great course on the history of the Supreme Court that I've been checking out recently. I think a lot of us, our image of the Supreme Court is very, very dominated by a sort of key decisions from the, the heyday of the civil rights movement. And those are really important. But it's really useful to sort of put those cases in the longer context of the history of this institution, where it came from. Uh, frankly, some of it's, it's darker days in the late 19th century when the Supreme Court was a, a real impediment to certain kinds of social change. It, it really helps you understand better how the American system of government works, how the American legal system has evolved. It's fascinating. And I would like you to benefit from this course and from other stuff on The Great Courses Plus too. So they're offering Weeds listeners a month of free video lectures when you sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Okay, so we have a white paper, not from NBER, but from, I don't know if it's a competitor, SSRN. Does that count as a competitor at NBER? I don't, SSRN I think is more of a repository than NBER does, right? Like, Matt, you know more about this. I I don't know what the deal with SSRN SSRN is. Social Science Research Network. I'm a loyalist to NBER. Well, if you could tell us about the internal politics, you can always email us at weeds at box.com. Anyways. Please don't do that. This is um, called Medicaid and Household Savings Behavior, New Evidence from Tax Refunds. It comes from Emily Gallagher. Um, I might mess up this name. I'm sorry. She Emily emailed me this paper, uh, and two of her colleagues, Radha Krishnan Gopalan and Jorge Sabat at Washington University in St. Louis, John M. Olin Business School. And they are looking at what happens to savings in Medicaid expansion households. What changes when you get Medicaid coverage. And and you could see this going one of two ways. People might save less money because they figure they have this backstop, that they have Medicaid now, that they don't need to have that cushion they used to keep. But one of the ideas, you know, Gallagher and her colleagues raise here is that low-income families already kind of had a high-deductible insurance plan. It was called bankruptcy, that you could eventually file for bankruptcy. It would wipe out your savings, but, you know, you wouldn't have that medical bill anymore. And and that kind of raised the question, well, why bother saving if you're just going to lose all that money to a medical bill at some point? So they look through um, how much people save from their tax refund, which is probably the largest amount of disposable income that someone who is eligible for Medicaid is getting each year. And what they find, somewhat surprisingly, is that Medicaid eligibility, Medicaid expansion eligibility, increases tax refund savings by about 4%, or roughly $100 for the average household in financial hardship. Um, They measure financial hardship by asking people about whether they've been able to pay their rent on time for the past six months. Wait, hold on. Can I back you up for one second? Yeah. That number seems weird to me. 
it increases the savings rate by 4%. And that's equal to $100? I can't be right. Percentage points. Thank you. Sorry. No problem. So the idea they raise here, and they say this is not true among all Medicaid expansion households, just those that really seem to be unable to pay rent, experiencing financial hardship, that it actually increases savings because you're not going to lose that money to a medical bill anymore, that you are saving this money, you're not going to lose it through a bankruptcy filing, um, that it actually encourages savings, which is a surprising finding. And to put it in context, this is not what all the research finds. There's separate earlier research from John Gruber at MIT who has found the opposite, that Medicaid expanded eligibility decreases savings, which is quite honestly the finding I would have expected from this paper. But I, I think in the larger picture of things, one of the things this paper speaks to for me is that health insurance often isn't about health. Health insurance is often about money and financial protection, that the thing insurance is doing, and this feels pretty clear when we look at other lines of insurance, like homeowners insurance, that it's protecting you from financial ruin if something really bad happens. And we see this in, for example, the Oregon experiment, where we don't see really solid health gains. We see people in better financial footing, less medical bankruptcy, less stress about bills, less unpaid credit card bills. Medicaid is people getting checkups and it is people getting access to health care, but it's also a financial insurance vehicle that is, it seems from the research we're seeing, bringing more stability to a population that might not always be able to pay their bills on time. You know, having that backstop on health care costs actually changes the financial realm of a family's life. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is that I think this paper is a reminder of just how devastating the incentives are of not having health care when you're really, really poor, right? I mean, you're, you're seeing a situation where the people really under financial hardship are basically refusing to save because they need the option of going bankrupt at like any moment. <laughs> um, and, and there's other things like this too, right? There are a lot of states where uh, even now, but but particularly prior to the Medicaid expansion and and now in non-Medicaid expansion states where Medicaid eligibility is really strange, right? Where you can make a little bit money and then you go off a complete cliff, right? You go from like being able to get Medicaid to all of a sudden not having anything at all. And like, that's really scary. And it can lead people, this is something Republicans talk a lot about, it can lead people to try to hold their incomes down. And I've seen this in practice with people I interview. And it makes total sense sense. to lose 20 bucks a week to keep your Medicaid. The stress of not being sure that you're going to be able to take care of yourself in the event of a health crisis is a terrible kind of stress. Like you mentioned the Oregon Health Experiment, and we've talked about that on the show, but one of the big findings there is that even where you didn't see as big health changes as some people expected, you saw very big improvements in mental well-being, drops in depression, drops in anxiety. It's just, it's really bad to be poor and uninsured. I mean, it's bad to be anything and uninsured, but it's really, really scary to be poor and uninsured. People will really orient their lives around trying to protect against the worst outcomes of that. And we are a more than rich enough society that we should be able to give people um, assurance that you know, they're going to be fine. Just to sort of connect this a a little bit to to the tax discussion, one thing that I think does not receive the appropriate level of attention in in the United States is that if you compare 2017 to 1980 or 1977, if you like round numbers, um, we have adopted a lot of policy shifts since that time whose putative rationale is to increase savings and investment levels in the United States. That's in terms of primarily lower marginal tax rates, a sort of special discount for capital gains, special carve-outs from the capital gains rate via 401k accounts, health savings accounts, flexible spending accounts, uh, some kind of education savings vehicles. There's a lot of stuff that's gone on. Uh, Lower inflation is supposed to have this result. And yet in the aggregate, the savings rate in the United States is much lower than, than it was in the in the 60s and 70s. And that shows that there is something that we are not getting right with the sort of basic tax-focused framework. And it would be really worthwhile to do more investigation of the kinds of questions that this Medicaid paper raises. Like, what actually in specific detail are the reasons that households save or don't save money right and there's a good there's a good story in this paper right about 
the functioning of health insurance and sort of bankruptcy as a covert high-value plan and things like that. And, you know, what can we really do to create a, like, a savings-friendly society, right? And in this case, giving people uh, protection against catastrophic medical expenses appears to at least potentially encourage them to do savings, whereas they know lacking that insurance protection, that savings is just ultimately going to wind up going into a sort of a a medical billing maw. And, And that's how we used to think about these kinds of issues more in the United States, more on a practical, concrete terms, like how is this going to impact what people do? And and I think there would be a lot of merit to sort of coming back to that and to rethinking the idea that what we need is to just sort of operate purely on the on the like tax discounts for investment income channel as, as a way to produce these outcomes. Yeah. And if you want to know more about high medical bills, you might want to check out my new podcast, The Impact. The first episode is about this $629 Band-Aid, which would be enough to wipe out actually a lot of low incomes families savings, an emergency room visit where a Band-Aid was given to a little girl. Um, So we are live. The first episode is up. You can go listen to it right now. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Rate it. Rate it. Sarah rate it. is reading all the ratings, and she is I loving <laughs> reading all the ratings. And you should leave her a rating and make her happy. Yeah. Um, here's an uncomfy. Here is a secret I will share with you guys. I obsessively read the reviews, and it's so exciting to hear what people think about it. I've been reading all the emails that come into um, impactedbox.com, our email address, and participating in the conversations in the Facebook group um, for the Weeds fans. So The Impact is live. Go subscribe. We have some great episodes coming for you guys over the next few weeks. Awesome. Well, that's another episode of The Weeds. I was going to say fun, but a lot of these topics were a little bit grim. But thank you to our engineer, Peter Leonard, to to Matt, to Sarah, to all of you. Uh, The Weeds is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back in a couple of days. 